And when one of the guys came across a snake and it jumped up and it bit him right in the rear, right in the butt. And so his friend, he calls the 911 and he says, hey, uh, my friend just got bit by a snake, what should I do? And the medical technician on the other side goes, you need to put your mouth on the area of the infection and suck the venom out as soon as possible. And so he hangs up the phone and his friend's eagerly like, what, what did they say, what did they say? And his friend pauses and he looks at him and goes, I'm sorry, buddy, you're gonna die. Now, this is, this is a sad joke and definitely not sound medical advice, but it serves as an illustration, right, that our actions reveal what our hearts treasure the most. For this friend, he loved himself and he was willing to lie and even let his friend die potentially uh, for, uh, instead of loving his friend. Um, and he wasn't willing to suck the poison out of his butt, right? Uh, so there's a direct connection between what we do and what we treasure. Uh, for some, maybe their treasure might be money, right? We'll do anything to get it. We could, could still lie. We might cheat. Hey, we might even work really hard, even in good and honest ways to get it. For others, treasure might be a job. It might be a family. Uh, it might be uh, pets or even a house, maybe even good health having fun, going on vacations, traveling, or maybe even a sports team. And we'll do anything we can to protect these things, you know, like sign stealing. Um, Jesus says in Matthew 6, 21, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So what about you? What about me? What do we value or treasure the most? What's most important to us? And how can we know? How do you know before the pressure's on and you have to make a life and death decision for your friend? Well, the Gospel writer Mark here employs a really helpful tool for us today called contrast. And it's helpful because it helps us to ascertain and discern in ourselves what's most important. What's, where is our treasure at? It's a really useful tool. It's uh, very basic, right? easy to use. It's even simple enough for a child to use when it comes to opposites. So what Mark does for us today, here today is going to provide two opposite examples of treasures to show us what we don't need and what we do need. So that's what we're going to look at here today. We're going to look at destructive treasures we need to avoid, dim treasures we need to assess, and desirable treasures we can accept. So first, destructive treasures we need to avoid. If you haven't been with us the last four weeks, we've been uh, in the um, uh, chapter 12 of Mark. Uh, Jesus has entered into Jerusalem, and he's going back and forth with the scribes and religious authorities. Uh, they're challenging him. They're questioning his authority. Uh, he's, he's now turned the tables quite literally and figuratively on them, and he starts confronting them and their uh, understanding. Uh, so who are these scribes? Well, these scribes were scholars. You know, most, most Jewish people had to memorize the Torah. So not only did they have the Torah, the first five books of our Bible, memorized, but they are also the most educated men, not just on the law, but also on uh, other lawyer or uh, lawful things. Um, they would actually write commentaries on the law. They would add to the law. Um, even legal documents for transactions, they would be a part of. For today, that's like your PhDs in, in theology or even in, in law. Uh, so first, uh, let's look at the passage here. It says, and in his teaching, he said. This is where we see the first contrast, the first opposite. We see in his teaching, that's Jesus' teaching, versus the scribes' teaching. Honest truth versus shallow traditions. The scribes were known for adding to the law. 
And uh, you can see this, right? Back in Matthew uh, 23, Jesus said, Do and observe what they tell you, but not the works that they do. For they preach, but they do not practice. They do all their deeds to be seen by others. Uh, they, uh, they have a real head knowledge about God. They know, they memorized it, but they don't have an understanding. It's not in their heart. They, it's not about all they do. It's more about themselves. So uh, next what we see here, uh, and we're going to see more evidence of this in this passage, uh, that they had a love for their traditions rather than a love for God. So first, uh, so overall what, what's happening now from here on, Jesus is going to provide his assessment or his appraisal of the scribe's treasure, where their hearts are at, versus the widow's treasure, where her heart is at. So first, Jesus says in verse 38, beware of the scribes. This word beware in the Greek is called is blepo. Blepo means to behold, to look at, to see, to be on your guard, to watch out for. What does he say to watch out for? He says, watch out for the scribes who like to do X, Y, and Z. So he's not saying all scribes. He's saying watch out for the scribes who practice these things. He's making a general uh, assessment here of people who do certain practices. And you can remember this is uh, true, too, because not too long ago we were in Mark uh, verse 30, 12, verse 34, where Jesus actually kind of encourages another scribe. He says, you're not far from the kingdom of God. So he's not calling out all the scribes, but he's calling out those who do these practices. Next, what does it say? So he says, beware of the scribes who like to walk around, who like to. This word, like to, this verb is uh, like a love, a desire. It's their pleasure. They treasure doing these things. And then what we see from here is we see a long list of actions. Uh, this is significant because there's a lot of destructive treasures out there. Uh, we'll see a few of them here. I think we can group all these into about three categories. Opinions, others' opinions, uh, self, uh, a love for self, and a love for control. So first, a love for others' opinions. Uh, these are things we, these are destructive treasures we need to avoid. Look at what Jesus says here. Uh, these scribes who, who take pleasure and who treasure walking around in, around in long robes. These scribes would often walk around in white dresses and be distinct or stand out in public. They had long tassels. And when people would see them, they actually people were required to stand up and give honor and praise to the scribes as they walked through the streets. This is very different than wise counsel, right? Wise counsel is a good thing. Opinions of, hey, you know, to consult the brother. Hey, am I going the right way here? That, that's totally different than what Jesus is uh, condemning here. He's saying, don't do this where you're desiring other people's praise, other people's recognition and honor above, uh, above God's. So what else do they do? They liked greetings. They treasured greetings in the marketplaces. And that doesn't sound too bad either. You know, I don't know about you. I, I grew up near a mall, and when I walked through the mall, it was nice to, when someone saw you and they say hi to you. You know, maybe you go to the grocery store, you see someone. It's like, yeah, that's pretty nice. I, I like that. I like coming to church and seeing you all and saying hi to you too. Uh, so Jesus isn't against that, but he's against the love for that. If, if our love primarily and firstly is predominantly for that recognition for, for others' opinion, then that's a destructive treasure that's not going to last, that, that comes and goes, that is wavering. So, uh, so he's saying, watch out for these people who, have, uh, who like the greetings in the marketplaces. Um, one scholar actually notes, they were venerated and unbound, with unbounded respect and awe. Their words were considered to possess sovereign authority. Uh, next, it says, uh, they 
have the best seats in the synagogue and the places of honor at feast. The, this is referring to certain benches on the walls of the synagogues which faced the congregation. The congregation had to sit on the floor, but these places of honor, they got to sit and, and look out at people, almost as if they were better than, or they had better um, uh, understanding, uh, which they did in certain ways. But um, lastly, it says, places of honor at feast. Uh, this is uh, important because, uh, you know, remember in, in Luke 14, Jesus said, uh, don't treasure these things. When someone invites you to a wedding feast, don't take the place of honor. For a person more distinguished than you may have been invited. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who, exalts, who humbles himself will be exalted. The, these comparisons, these opinions, and, and perspectives of others can often inflate our ego, e egos. They can ruin us, especially when we don't measure up. One scholar says that being able to do good on a scale that others can't do can give you the inbred delusion of superiority and safety, a sense of being good while you're barren of goodness. But again, ultimately, what, what these practices show is that their treasure is in themselves, in their recognition, and, their, and more than their love for God. And they actually go about and hurt others in the process, which is what we see next. So the next category of self, right? A love of self, a love of things at the expense of others. It's all about getting more, more, more. I want, I want, I want. We see that here when it says, those who devour widows' houses. Um, this is a difficult phrase. One scholar notes it's like saying, uh, um, it's potentially hinting that they were taking material advantage of people. When they would do legal documents and go back and forth, they would actually add a little bit on the top or charge extra hours than uh, maybe they were due. And it's basically, this phrase is like saying, eating someone out of house and home. The, these scribes would eat these poor widows out of house and home. And they were doing it for themselves. That was their, self -mo that was their motivation. Uh, they're, um, they were selfishly benefiting themselves financially because of the love of stuff at the disadvantage of others. This is like a survival of the fittest mentality, right? Uh, you know, someone is always going to lose when you think that way. Uh, throughout the Old Testament, too, we note in Isaiah 10, even, uh, the Lord condemns those who abuse widows, poor, and the fatherless. Uh, th these, saying that these people, people who do these things would be destroyed. R.T. Bruce says the vulnerability of widows is a recurrent theme in biblical literature so that to defraud them is particularly despicable. So these wrongful actions reflect their hearts that they treasure themselves. The other thing they treasured lastly is control. They sa it says here at the end, for pretense they make long prayers. Now, now Jesus isn't against long prayers. Jesus would often get away and go pray by himself. Um, but what he's after here is the pretense, They're, why they were doing it. They were doing it for a pretense. They were doing it for the motive of showing off, to look better than others, for power, for control. They were taking pleasure in manipulating the situation, and just like they were doing by taking advantage of the widows. Usually this is done for a selfish purpose, for a pretense to gain something, because it makes you feel good, it makes you look good. But remember, Jesus said the opposite when it comes to prayer. When you do pray, get alone. Go into your room. Pray in secret because your Father who sees in secret will see you and reward you. Uh, a helpful illustration, I think, uh, that could help apply this uh, as well is from Charles Spurgeon. He talks about uh, this one illustration called the carrot and the horse. It goes like this. Once upon a time, there was a king who ruled over everything in a land. And one day there was a gardener who grew an enormous carrot. He took it to his king and said, My lord, this is the greatest carrot I've ever grown or ever will grow. Therefore, I want to present it to you as a token of my love and respect for you. 
The king was touched and discerned the man's heart. So as he turned to go, the king said, wait, you are clearly a good steward of the earth. I want to give you a plot of land to, to you freely as a gift so you can garden it all. The gardener was amazed and delighted and went home rejoicing. But there was a nobleman in the king's courtyard who overheard all this and said, my, if that's what you can get for a carrot, what if you gave God something even better? So the next day, the nobleman came before the king and he was leading a handsome black stallion. And he bowed low and said, my Lord, I breed horses and this is the greatest horse I've ever bred or ever will. Therefore, I want to present it to you as a token of my love and respect for you. But the king discerned his heart and said, thank you. And he took the horse and simply dismissed him. The nobleman was perplexed. So the king said, let me explain. The gardener was giving me the carrot, but you were giving yourself the horse. These greater loves for others' opinions, for ourselves and control are destructive treasures that have the appearance of godliness, but often fall so short. We must, we need to avoid them. Now, what about us? How are we seeking these destructive treasures at all? Are we at all like the scribes? For myself, sadly, I know that I can often get caught up in social media browsing. Uh, I know often, too, I can get caught up in considering my health a lot, like looking at my watch, it tells me what my heart, resting heart rate is. Uh, is, it, is it low enough? Am I getting sick? You know, what's going on here? You know, what, what occupies our thoughts? For, for myself, I, I, can, I see often that I'm selfishly checking these things or being focused even on my teeth hygiene or even on my daughters, and that can occupy my thoughts, sadly, more than God can. Uh, I know this week, uh, even preparing for this sermon, it's been... Uh, uh, very revealing, often, of my heart condition. Uh, just waiting for things for last minute, uh, putting undue pressure on my wife. Uh, it's just, it's, it is very humbling to be reminded that we are not, I know I am not, uh, much unlike these scribes. There are a lot of destructive treasures that still grip my heart, right? Like it says in 1 John 1, 8 through 10, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So that's my prayer for us here. I pray that we wouldn't think that we're not like them, uh, that we would see that, that basically these definitions of, of self, of opinions, uh, loving for these things, that's the basic definition of sin. That's what sin is. And the Bible says that the heart is deceitful above all things. It's desperately sick. Who can understand it? <clears throat> so... What happens? What, so what does this lead to? To make the, the consequences of these things, when you have these greater loves, when you practice these ways like the scribes, what can it lead to? Well, it shows that it leads to a greater love for these things uh, results in greater condemnation. What does it say here in the passage? It says um, that those, uh, they will receive the greater condemnation. It may seem worth it. It may seem worth it to just let these things go on. It's not that bad. You can make excuses. You might even be able to blame others. But are we going to be honest with ourselves? Are we going to be honest about where are we giving in to destructive treasures? At the Bible study yesterday, Benjamin put it really well in an illustration. He said, it's like eating delicious, seeing a delicious uh, chocolate pudding uh, and wanting it, even though it's laced with poison. Paul wrote, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. The wages of sin is death. Sin separates us from the good, just, and holy God of this universe. And there is no good works we can do to earn his approval, to eliminate that. And that's bad news for the scribes, but also for all of us who have loved these destructive treasures more than God. 
But thankfully, our passage isn't finished, and, and neither is God. So let's look on. Here's the second point. Dim treasures we need to assess. Dim treasures we need to assess. What I mean by dim is, is unclear. Uh, look on with me at verse 41. He sat down opposite the treasury and watched the people putting money into the offering box. Many rich people put in long, uh, large sums. There's some things in this physical world we may need at times. Um, they're not wrong or right. Rather, they're amoral, right? Uh, they're amoral things and they're dim because it depends on what the motive of the heart is, how you use them. Do you use them for God's glory or do you use them for yourself? Do you use them for anything other than God? And they, so they could become destructive if you idolize them, if you prioritize them, or if you ignore them. If you ignore the fact that we have been given a finite human body that needs sleep, that, that needs medicine at times, that, that needs relationships, that needs certain things up here. Now, there's a lot of different ways, a lot of different things up here that it could look like that amoral things might be. But if they're truly surrendered to God, he can use these things in incredible ways to bring him glory and for our good. So let's look at a few examples from this text, from verse 41. In verse 41, he says, Jesus sat down opposite the treasury. <laughs> rest, right? Rest, sleep, both convicting and comforting. Convicting, if you have an image of God that says, oh, Jesus never sat down. Jesus was always busy. He was always doing something. He was always running around healing people. But look at here, right here. He sat down. He rested. And now it's also not only convicting, but comforting to know that, you know, <laughs> we can rest too. We, sometimes we need rest. You know, though the Bible does say, uh, don't love sleep, Proverbs 20, 13, it doesn't say we don't need it. You know, even Jesus slept. The real question is, how much sleep do we need and when do we need it? Now, it's hard for an observer to know without context if a person sleeping is really lazy or really needs it. And I, I think that's, the, again, one of the beauties here of these amoral things, right? It depends how it's used it. Uh, but next, let's see. So he sat down opposite the treasury, and what did Jesus do? He watched the people putting money into the offering box. But here we see a, an important quality about who God is. God is attentive. God sees everything. He's the only just judge of our hearts. Only he sees our hearts. Again, this is very convicting if we don't want him to see the wrongful desires, the destructive desires and treasures in our heart. But it's also very comforting um, if you ever feel alone. If you ever think that, man, these are, seeming, these are insignificant, meaningless moments in my life. Uh, why am I going through this? Why am I doing TPS reports at work? Why, why am I cleaning up a child's accident again? Why, why, why do I have to do this over and over again? Maybe even it's studying for a test and you think, how am I ever going to use this? When is this ever going to matter? But remember, God sees. God is watching. God cares about his people. And how we use this thing, how we use all these things matter. Jeremiah 17.10 says, I, the Lord, search the heart and test the mind to give every man according to his ways, according to the fruit of his deeds. Remember, how we use these things reflects what we believe and where our treasure is. So we need to assess our ways. We need to assess them. And then lastly, another amoral thing is amounts. We see here throughout the rest of this whole passage, um, but particularly here in 41, many pe rich people put in large sums. Jesus, Jesus doesn't condemn rich people for putting in large sums. If anything, he says they're not as worthy as this woman who has put in so much more with so little. But what he is saying, he is saying that it's good for rich people to put in large sums. That's really a good thing. That's almost an expected thing. Um, but again, it's, it's unclear. Are they putting it in because they want 
uh, people to recognize them, or are they putting it in because uh, they really want to honor God and want to do what pleases him? Uh, so I have a picture of the temple treasury up here, just to give you some context. Uh, so the treasury, so this again, this is during the Passover time. People so would sojourn and come to Jerusalem, come to the temple to worship God, to celebrate the Passover. And the place where this is all occurring here uh, is in the court of women. Uh, this is the first enclosure of the sanctuary where Jewish women and children were allowed to worship. Um, the Mishnah reports that there was 13 shofar chests, they were called in the temple. These shofar means ram's horn, uh, basically brass, metal uh, bins or, or trunks that you could put your money in. They were narrow at the top to prevent thieves and would get wider at the bottom. And uh, people would come and, and place their money in it. Um, and basically when they did place it in it, um, you could hear like a, no, a loud noise of people putting money in it. So this is what Jesus is sitting across. This is what Jesus is looking at. And when we, again, we need to remember that money is amoral. It's not an evil of itself. First Timothy 6, 10 says the love of money. It's the love of money that is a root of all kinds of evil. Um, so again, there's a strong connection between how we use these dim treasures and what we ultimately treasure. Um, an a point of application I wanted to note is, is uh, when it comes to money, one way we can assess where our heart is, where we can assess where our dim treasure like, like money might be is, is budgeting. If you've never done one, I would greatly encourage you to. It, it's a great way that we can assess what, where is money coming, how is money coming in, how much is coming in, and how much is going out. Where is it going? How is it being directed? Um, not only can you do this with, where, with money, but with your time. How, how do you spend your time during the day? How do you... Um, how do you use treasures and talents? Uh, where do your thoughts go? Uh, another helpful tool is uh, ask someone to give you some feedback on, on, on what they think where your treasures are. Uh, this is really helpful. Uh, another helpful application to understand or to assess where is our treasure, where is our dim treasures is, you know, if these things were devoured, if, if, if they were taken away, then what would, how would it affect our joy tomorrow? Does your delight, does your security... Does your life depend on these things? If so, then they're probably your treasure. But remember that these are dim treasures. We need to assess them properly, and thankfully, there is another greater treasure we can rely upon and accept. So that brings us to the last point. Desirable treasure we can accept. So don't forget, uh, we have destructive treasures of the scribes, right? Those who love the traditions versus the truth. Um, Mark's uh, descriptions here, as we look at verse 42, are really helpful. It says, And a poor woman came and put in two small copper coins which make a penny. <clears throat> she wasn't just a widow. She, she was lonely, marginalized, um, and a poor widow at that. She, she's not even given a name here in this passage. And I think that really hints at uh, our own spiritual depravity, right? Our own spiritual need. Are, are we not the same like this widow? Are we not poor and needy? Or, or do we have it all together? Are we like the scribes who, you know, I've got it all covered, look at me. So our spiritual poverty is much greater than our physical needs. We are weak, broken, sinful beings, uh, as we've already seen in the scribes. And, and this poor widow recognized this truth. Uh, that's, what, that's one of the desirable treasures here, is that the truth of the matter is that we are poor and needy. And what, look what happens what Jesus does when he sees this truth. Uh, he calls his disciples to him and he says, 
Truly I say to you, well, the first thing he does when he sees truth is he does something about it. He calls his disciples to him. He can't keep this truth in. He has to let it out. Uh, he says uh, he has to tell someone. Uh, Jesus said this about the kingdom of heaven, that it's like a treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered it up. Then in his joy he goes and sells all that he has and buys the field. True treasure leads us to radical action. Next, Jesus says to his disciples, truly I say to you. This is really significant, too. This, this is truly, truly. We see throughout uh, the Gospels that when Jesus says this, uh, this word in the Greek is amen, which might be surprising for some of us. Why would amen be at the front of what he's about to say rather than at the end, isn't it? You know, we say our prayers and then we say amen, you know, which is great. It means so shall it be. We're all in alignment. We agree with what we just prayed for. But when Jesus uses amen at the beginning of something he's about to say, it's hinting at something so much more, so much more significant uh, than just uh, an opinion or uh, some sort of advice. What Jesus is hinting at is that he is the authority. He, he originated this idea. He started it, that this is real truth. It's not made up. It's not just his opinion. It's not relative. This is truth that applies now and in the past and in the future uh, and the culture here and the culture across the world. It, it's, it's objective, real truth. Uh, it's, it's just like Jesus said about himself, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one can come to the Father except through me. Jesus came in the fullness of truth and grace. He is God and is the only desirable treasure that we ultimately need. He is enough. And the Bible is God's true word. It says in it that the unfolding of his word gives light. It gives understanding. It's sweeter than honey. This widow knew that truth. Even on that side of the cross, she must have heard it from the, the, from the Old Testament, right? The Lord watches over sojourners. He upholds the widow and the fatherless. And he identifies and cares with the poor and the, and the help, uh, helpless. She must have stored this up in her heart. And there's countless stories of brothers and sisters all across the world who have traveled miles and miles, days and days, to try to have access to a Bible. And what about us? Is the Bible the most precious truth to us? Is it, is it richer and more important, more precious to us than thousands of pieces of silver or gold? More precious to us than winning the lottery? Do we know this truth? Do we accept it as our ultimate authority, as what it is? Truth is a desirable treasure. Yet even knowing this truth, as we saw with the scribes, uh, doesn't necessarily mean we, we have it. Uh, and it doesn't get us the ultimate treasure. So what do we need? Well, what's next? We see this widow exhibits great obedience, another treasure, right? Obedience. Uh, it's a contrast to valuing others' opinion. So instead of valuing others' opinion, we can have private, personal devotion and obedience to God. God calls us to obey him. It's for our good and for his glory. It's a great gift of great value. And here's what it says in this text. This poor widow has put in more than all those who are contributing to the offering box. Here is where we see the evaluation of the value that Jesus gives here with money. It's an upside-down value of the kingdom versus this world. The kingdom values the heart, and it's reflected in our obedience, whereas the world values the amount, and it's reflected in, our, in their earnings and like the merit-based uh, type of um, process. James Edwards notes that how powerfully ironic is the word more here in Mark's description. Everything about this woman has been described in terms of less, particularly in comparison to the scribes and wealthy crowd. And yet, 
the contrast between her genuine piety and faith and the pretense of the wealthy is beyond comparison. A few weeks ago, we discussed in our, our men's uh, small group uh, the question, can you obey God without a love for God? Can you obey God without a love for God? My, my initial reaction then was, was no. But, I mean, people can still do good, and, and God's probably okay with that. But the more we talked about it, the more I thought about it, man, how wrong I was. <laughs> the, the answer to this, can we obey God without a love for God, is absolutely not. Absolutely not. Think about that. You know, if you, if you think, oh, I need to go to church, I need to stop swearing, you know, so I, can, so I can please God, if you're just doing it, if you're just going to church, if you're just going through the motions, if you're just doing these things because you think that's just the right thing to do and you don't really have a heart for God, then <laughs> you need to pause and reflect on why you're doing what you're doing. If you're not doing it for a love for God, then you're missing the point. The Bible says, love God with all your heart, soul, mind. It's like, love your neighbor as yourself. That, that's the thrust. That's the focus. That's the core and the heart of our treasure is love for God, not our obedience. The obedience is a response. Is a, is a, um, it comes after our love for him. We don't owe anything to God. He owns the cattle on a thousand hills. Isn't that crazy to think about? He, he owns everything, so why does he want us to give to him? Why does he want our obedience still? Well, our obedience is directly tied to where our treasure is, as we've been saying, right? We practice what we believe. We, we do where our treasure is. So he wants our obedience. He, he desires it. He wants us to give him everything, right? Jesus, I owe you everything. We do owe him in one sense, but at the same time, we don't owe him in another. <laughs> our obedience cannot pay him back for all that he has done and is still doing for us. Otherwise, then it wouldn't be grace. Sheer grace is undeserved favor. Now, thinking back to this woman's gift, right, it, it shows that even little gifts uh, have significant value. Garland notes that little gifts may eclipse those who offer millions and that even the poorest can make a worthy offering to God. I don't know where you're at in your life right now, uh, whether you think you're just overwhelmed and have not much to offer. Uh, but when you think about Scripture, there's so many encouraging stories like this one. Uh, but also think about the five loaves and two fish. The boy just said, here, I have five loaves and two fish. Is this enough? And look what Jesus did with that. Look at the increase that Jesus brought from that. Look at what Jesus could do with a poor woman's mites. Even when... Uh, 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 evaluating David, uh, when Samuel was evaluating David's brothers of who would be a crown the next king or an anointed king, the Lord said to Samuel, do not consider his appearance or his height for I have rejected him. The Lord does not look at things people look at. The Lord looks at the heart. People look at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. A uh, quick, quick illustration of this that I've seen is uh, I was uh, at another church in town um, months ago, and it was during football season, uh, and there's this one gentleman there who was parking cars for the football Saturday game, and he, uh, he just had this big smile on his face, and he was real excited, and he said, hi, he's like, hi, my name's so-and-so, and I'm like, hey, nice to meet you, uh, and I wouldn't, you wouldn't have known it, but... I, it wasn't until weeks later I was looking up that same church and who their pastor was, and, and this guy was the pastor. And I was blown away because he didn't come across like, hey, I'm the pastor here, you know, like I, uh, I, you know, I, I lead this church and stuff. He, he was the most humble and, and gracious man you could ever meet, full of the joy and humility in the Lord. And, and he was just obeying God, obeying God in his heart and, and in the little things. So there's great value and treasure in obedience, even with the little that we have. 
Next, uh, sacrifice. So in comparison to self, in comparison to giving, which the scribes model, we see the model of the woman, of the widow, uh, giving herself, sacrificing herself, laying it all on the line. It says, for they all contributed out of their abundance, but she, out of her poverty, which is like her destitution, uh, has put in everything she had, all she had to live on. I think it's really important here to note that it's not just one, but two coins she put in, the Greek word lepta. Um, she could have just given one. 50% of all she had, she would have put in. Wouldn't that have been enough? That would have been amazing obedience. Can you imagine if we did that today? Here, Lord, I, I'm going to donate today at the church 50% of all the money in my bank account. But she doesn't do that. She gives two coins. Uh, she wasn't even obligated to give things, uh, or obligated to give all that she had. Uh, but she did. This, this shows that what she had was just complete dedication. It symbolizes an undivided heart, is what the scholars know. And why, why would she do such a thing? You know, if, if we uh, talk to one another today, or maybe you sat down with your financial advisor and you thought, I'm going to go and give 100% of all that I have. I'm sure our advice to, to each other and even from our financial advisor would be like, what are you doing? You're crazy. <laughs> Don't do that. <laughs> That's not wise, right? How are you going to provide for your family? You know, why was she doing this? It, it's not because she wanted to be seen. You know, that was clear enough. When she put the two pennies in the so far chest, they made a small ding sound. Not like the rich. She made a, a loud money machine sound. Um, she wasn't obligated to, you know, and her treasure was not in these possessions, obviously. It wasn't in where was she going to get her next meal because she didn't have money to pay for one. And she wasn't trusting in herself that she had the ability to make the money back either. Uh, <clears throat> I think it's important to remember that uh, this is during the week of, of Passover. Remember, the Lord during Passover rescued Israel from the hand of Pharaoh and from the Egyptians by passing over the blood of the lamb. They sacrificed the blood of the lamb and put his, the blood on the doorpost. Now, how fitting is the example here of someone willing to put in everything she had? We have to remember that Jesus is using this poor widow as a model here. He's using her as a model to point to himself. He is the sacrificial lamb who was slain for our sin. He put in everything so that we, he could have us. Don't you see? He is our treasure. No matter how great the cost may seem, no matter how great the sacrifice may seem to us, it's, it's incomparable to how much it costs the Father to lose his one and only Son. The Bible says, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor. So that you, by his poverty, might become rich. This desirable treasure was costly and sacrificial, and we need it, and we can accept it. Now, from there, we can obey, too. From there, we can freely bring all that we have, whatever we have, just like this poor widow. <clears throat> One scholar notes that for Jesus, the value of the gift is not the amount given, but the cost to the giver. We can think back to the rich young ruler, right, who came to Jesus wanting eternal life. And Jesus said, if you would be perfect, go and sell your possessions and give to the poor. Then you'll have treasure in heaven and come follow me. Jesus called him to sacrifice his uh, destructive treasures, to, distract us, to, to sacrifice himself for, for Jesus. 
So like him and like this poor widow, is that what we're called to do? Are we, it begs the question, should we sell everything and give to the poor? Well, I can't answer that for you. The answer might be yes. It was yes for the rich young ruler. Uh, so it might be yes for you, but also maybe not. You know, we see a lot of other examples uh, like the church, the New Testament church, that they were giving. They, they put aside extra money. Um, John Piper talks about how the purpose of the early church was to work to get money so that they could give. Uh, we see it even with uh, Zacchaeus, right? When he realized uh, that he had sinned and stealing people's money, he gave back twice as much. He didn't give everything. He gave back only twice as much. And that's not that that's wrong. Jesus praised him for giving twice as much. Too. So, yes, you might be called to sell, every, sell everything and give to the poor, but at the same time, maybe not. Now, if this uh, seems too radical, too unsafe, or too unwise, we have to remember Jesus praises her for it. Jesus put in everything so that he could give, uh, have us. He forgave so that we can forgive. He forgave us so that we can forgive others. We love because he first forgave or first loved us. Remember, the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. I think for a lot of us in the church, uh, we can forget that we have this treasure in Christ. There's a good illustration of a poor widow that D.L. Moody uh, used who lived in the Scottish Highlands, and one day she was called upon by a gentleman who had heard she was in need. This old lady complained of her condition and remarked that her son was in Australia and doing well. But does he do nothing to help you, inquired the visitor? No, nothing, was the reply. He writes me regularly once a month, but only sends me a little picture with his letter. This gentleman asked to see one of these pictures uh, that she had received and found each of them to be checks for $10,000. D.L. Moody notes that this is the condition of many of God's children. He has given us exceedingly great and precious promises, which we are either ignorant of or fail to apply to cash in. Many of us seem to be pretty pictures of ideal peace. Uh, many of these seem to be pretty pictures of ideal peace and rest, but are not being taken hold of as practical, practical helps in daily life. So sacrifice is a valuable treasure, but ultimately it means nothing if we're doing, if we're sacrificing and obeying for the wrong reasons. So if we don't owe God anything, if we can't sacrifice enough, then what can we do? How can we get this desirable treasure? And this is the, the real last point, is trusting God. This is what we see throughout the text, is that this wimo, widow uh, had, may not have had any idea where her next meal would come from or where she might sleep that night, but it clearly shows that her actions reflect that she had complete trust in God to provide for her. And that's, that's what true faith is. Hebrews 11.1 1 says, now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. For by it people of old receive their commendation. William Lane notes that the women's sacrifice is what was necessary, all she had. It was this that disciples needed to understand, for the call to the gospel is a call to absolute surrender to God and total trust in him. The Bible says, but whatever gains were me, you know, this is uh, Paul talking in Philippians 3, one of my favorites. Uh, he says, whatever were gains to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything as loss compared to the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them garbage that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. 
And then there's a promise that comes after this. My God will meet all your needs according to the riches of his glory in Christ Jesus. My God will meet all your needs according to the riches of his glory in Christ Jesus. This widow's trust reflects that she, what she believes about God, that God cares for her. She was even on the other side of the cross. How much more then should we believe in who he says he is? That he is Jehovah Jireh, the God who provides. Jesus alone is our desirable, is the desirable treasure. Jesus said in Matthew 26, 26, Look at the birds of the air. Do they not sow? They do not sow or reap or store away in barns. Do they not sow or reap or store, store away in barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them? Are you not much more valuable than we? Now, so that's how we can get desirable treasure. It's trusting, it's having faith, it's treasuring Christ. That's why we're here, treasuring Christ's church. So what does this lead to? So when it, destructive treasures led to greater condemnation, desirable treasure, the desirable treasure, the one and only desirable treasure leads to commendation, leads to praise. This widow had the praise of God the Father. The Bible says there is much rejoicing in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Thanksgiving. This, this is the sacrifice that God truly desires. Do, do you know that you are treasured? Are you like that old woman who just has a bunch of banknotes on the side and hasn't put them in the, hasn't um, cashed them in yet? Are, are you treasuring Christ? Deuteronomy 14.2 said about Israel that you are a people holy to the Lord your God. And the Lord has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession. Out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth, if this was true for Israel, how much true is it for the church, for the body of Christ? In him, he treasures you. He praises, the he praises you before the Father. We need this treasure, and we can, t we can accept, we can receive this treasure. I, I love this phrase um, that uh, another pastor uses. He says that in Christ... There's nothing more you can do to make him love you anymore. And there's nothing you, can, you have done to make, you, make him love you any less. There's nothing you can do to make him love you anymore. And there's nothing you have done to make him love you any less. Th this is grace. Undeserved favor. The joy of the Lord is our strength. So, so what do you treasure? What you do reflects what you believe and what you treasure. Can, can you honestly stand before God and say that you treasure him? Don't, don't let this question just brush past. Don't be quick to dismiss it. The, the most important question we can answer is, do we treasure Christ? Have we accepted him? Ha, have we received his wonderful gift? Do we trust in him? Do, we, uh, reflect, do our ways reflect that? And that's my prayer for us today. I pray that our treasure is not on earth, where moth and dust and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but our treasure in, is in heaven, where neither moth nor dust or rust destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Let's pray.